to go to this morning. Um, the miracle of life is an amazing thing, isn't it? Um, we have a couple of Chi Alpha students that need some help. I'll say this before I jump into the message. Teddy Willis and Joey Monroe are going on a missions trip this summer, and they're just a little short on their funds. So uh, we, we lost our Wi-Fi until this morning. Thank the Lord for Tolliver. Uh, my efforts to reboot it didn't work. He goes and tries it one time. It works. I, I don't have the Midas touch. He has the Midas touch. So you can give on PushPay, um, and it has to have Wi-Fi to do that. But uh, if you want to give to either one of them, mark it on the other, on the option when you pull up our offering page on PushPay. And I know they'll appreciate you helping them out. Um, I want to share with you a message titled, The Hope That Is Within You. Where's Nick at? You know what I'm talking about, right? But I'm not going to be preaching on 1 Peter 3.15, am I? That is a phrase from uh, the apologetics verse that uh, in 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you for a reason of the hope that is within you. And we usually focus on apologia, the reason, but it's the reason for the hope that is within you. What is this hope that is within you? What is hope? Now, we might use the word sometimes as a wish. Like we say, I hope that works out. I hope so. But that's not the biblical word for hope. It's, a very, it's much stronger than a wish. It doesn't even involve a wish. It means assurance. It means confidence. Of the confidence, give a reason for the confidence you have in Christ. When you start defending your faith, there has to be a confidence in that faith for you to defend it. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of debates by atheists and creationists and intelligent design, and I've always found those fascinating. And there's never going to be a point to where the sides say, okay, you win, because they both claim to win. But I do like the way Many of them come out of that on the, eighth, on the uh, creation side and intelligent design side. In fact, if you have never watched the movie Expelled, this is just an advertisement. I didn't mean to give this. Expelled, it was a documentary. Um, it'd be worth you pulling up and going through it because it shows you incredible way about intelligent design. That's just a little, pit of, uh, a, a little dig for that. But we're going to look at Colossians 1 and Paul's letter to believers in the city of Colossae. And before I read this, Paul had never been there. He didn't preach there. He didn't bring the gospel to these people. Now, he writes as though he was there, but he tells you just in the early words of chapter 1 who brought the gospel to them. As part of his team, he had a team of people around him, and they... Many of them went in places that he didn't go, and sometimes they went together. And when he starts off this letter, he talks about he and Timothy, the team that they know, that they know about them, but probably neither one of them have been there. So he's writing to a congregation he's never met in person. I want you to keep that in mind. So here we are in 
Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And the reason I like reading that is that we usually skip over that, just get to the good stuff, right? But it shows you that he feels as though he's on first-name basis with them just because of the shared faith that they have. In verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope, and this is the first of three occasions the word hope appears in chapter 1, and it's the only places in Colossians that the word appears. That faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Isn't it interesting that Paul looks upon what the church is doing as though it's spread all across the world, everywhere, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, part of Paul's team, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And for this reason... Since the day we heard about you, when they heard that that city had accepted the gospel on the very first day that the gospel was preached, that did not usually happen. But there was a response, and this group of people became pretty special in Paul's eyes. Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to, and I want you to hear this prayer request and see if if it differs from many of the prayer requests we make. We continue to ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued and he changed something here. I want you to, he's talking about you and all that they're praying for them. And then all of a sudden he joins them along with his team. He changes to us first person. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Of course, the first, the focus here is on the church, the community of faith that has been birthed through Epaphras preaching and they've come to know the Lord on the very first day and they seem to be very strong. But what he's praying for them, do you notice that there's no physical things that he's praying for them for? It's all in the spirit realm. And I think sometimes in our praying, we get maybe so focused on the physical realm that we tend to not think about the spiritual realm. 
of what God is doing in our souls, in our minds, in our spirit. It is Jesus that we have redemption. He is the source of redemption. And in him, he says in verse 14, in him we had the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Have all of our debt washed away. And with that statement, Paul shifts into a description of Christ. What follows beginning in verse 15 is one of the most exclusive passages you will hear of a description of Jesus that you probably won't find anywhere else in the New Testament. This is why this, this congregation intrigues me because Paul talks to them. Now, he gets down where he knows there's other problems there. But the way he talks to them, he sees them as spiritually advanced. He's not talking to them. What did he say to the Corinthians? I would like to give you meat, but you can't take it. You still need milk. I think if he used that statement with these, he says, I'm so glad to see that you went from milk to meat. Because the terms that he's using here is going to reflect on how he talks to them about the Lord. This is in verse 15. They, they had repented. They had come to know the Lord. Their lives were changed. Jesus is the Lord of their lives. And Paul only elevates that lordship by what we're about to read, beginning in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That's the first of two times he uses the word firstborn. The firstborn over all creation. For in him, in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities... All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, and here's that word again, firstborn. And it doesn't mean first in sequence, but first in prominence. Because he's always been, but he's first in prominence. Over all of creation, the role he had in creation, he defines that. The firstborn from among the dead, this is when he was raised on the third day, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." In verse 17, it doesn't say he was before all things. It says he is before all things. The present tense is always associated with God. He is. He is the I am. Remember what Jesus said before Abraham was? I am. And they knew what he meant. They picked up rocks to stone him. Because they knew what he was saying, that he was God. Always been. Before Abraham was, I am. And Paul only elaborates this idea that the eternality of, of Christ, the Son of God, before the incarnation in Mary's womb, he was before all things and had a hand in creating all things. He became, the, the miracle of the conception of Jesus is really hard to explain. How the eternal son, self-existent, second person of the Trinity descends 
into the womb of a little Nazarene young lady from Nazareth and joins with humanity in her womb and become the Christ child. You just can't figure that out. It is, it is probably one of the most perplexing things to understand that God became man, that God didn't dwell in a man. God became man in the person of Jesus. This is why it means he's the firstborn from among the dead. He's the first one to be raised. Even in, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul gets a sequence of resurrection, he said Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And on down is going to be following those who are in faith in him. But he's raised in a different way than Lazarus was raised. Poor Lazarus had to die twice. And I guess that was okay with, with him. He probably, didn't have a, he probably didn't have a choice. But eternally so, Jesus was raised. He has the supremacy. And if you've seen me, he said to people, you have seen the Father. I don't need to show you the Father. If you've seen me, You've seen the Father. Everything about the Father, the Spirit, Father in heaven, he said, you've really seen him if you've really seen me. And his blood on the cross brought a lasting peace in verse 20 that we have, he's made peace through his blood shed on the cross. And there's no way to exaggerate the effect of the cross of Christ. There's no way to exaggerate that. You can't, Make that bigger than what it is. It, it is. it is the centerpiece of God's redemptive work in our world. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. You remember those words? Charles Wesley wrote, His blood can make the vilest clean. His blood availed for me. He will break the power of canceled sin in our lives. There is no explanation how someone can repent and turn to Jesus and be transformed. You can't explain that away. When Chuck Colson got born again, everybody said he was just faking it to try to uh, minimize the, the uh, sentence that he was going to be given. But the man went into prison as a witness for Christ. He came out of prison and all of his friends says, you know, we'll help you find a job. And he said, no, I think I need to go back into prison. They thought he was crazy. And even after that man died, there were some people who would still try to tell you he was a fraud. <laughs> he went into prisons all over the world. He was transformed. I mean, he was the hatchet man for Nixon. He was one of the most hated men in politics. See, I'm old enough to know all about that. And was totally transformed when he read some things in mere Christianity from this cold-blooded, I didn't care if I assassinated anybody's character and destroyed their life and destroyed their home, destroyed them financially. He became totally opposite of that. That's what the cross does for people. It changes them. In verse 21, you know, I'm reading a lot of verses here. I hope it's okay with you. Because they need to be read, right? In case you haven't read the first chapter of Colossians, welcome. We're going to do everything but the last verse. And I should read that, but just so you can't go around here. So he read the whole first chapter of Colossians. Once you were alienated, this is verse 21. Once you were alienated from God 
And he's talking to the people he just talked about, how great believers they were, but he knows and he wants to remind them where they came from. You were alienated from God. We're enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. You were not good people. And Saul of Tarsus thought he was about as good as they come, and yet he said he was a chief of sinners when he looks back on his life and that he was as, as poor in sin as anybody else that he could think of. The chief of sinners. And he says, I know where you came from. Your evil behavior. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. He's reconciled you regardless of how evil behavior you had. To present you holy in his sight. Without blemish. Free from accusation. If you continue in your faith. And get ready. This is the second place that you see the word hope. It's the Greek word elpis, and it means a confident assurance, a steadfastness. And he's about to use this word for the second time. If you continue in your faith, establish and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. That joyful, confident expectation of eternal life. That's what hope is all about. And Paul is not finished with it. He's going to use it one more time before we're through with this. But he's telling them the gospel is relevant in every setting on the earth because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every people group in this world needs to hear the gospel. At least once. And someone asked me, you know, what about those people who, you know, in a conversation, what about those people? Is, is God just in people not making, that people go to hell and they never had a chance to hear the gospel? That's a pretty probing question, isn't it? You know, you almost have to go to Romans 1 and talks about that there's enough in the creation revealed about God that everybody's responsible. But I just, this is just me, okay? I have no proof for this. But I just believe that God is really revealing himself to people somewhere in the world because somebody's praying for that nation. Somebody's praying for Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. Somebody's praying for Malaysia. Somebody's praying for the Maldives that has probably one of the strictest rules on allowing any believers there. I just believe when we people call out the names, God responds somehow to reveal himself to those people. And I think we'll be surprised who all is in heaven. Because God is not willing that any should perish. And there's anyone that has, has some kind of inclination to know that there's someone out there that cares about me that I need to find out who he is. A little Muslim girl that wrote a book. Her family moved to Ohio. And she got around young people, Christian young people that shared the gospel with her. And she committed probably her life to the Lord. But after she became a believer, she remembered as a child in Sri Lanka in the yard that one day a figure appeared to her in that yard and she didn't know who it was until after she came to know Jesus and she says, oh, that's who that was. Appearing in 
her yard in Sri Lanka in a closed environment. I'm just telling you, I believe God is revealing himself to people around the world that we have no idea the, the vastness of what he's doing. And it's not to, to kind of dodge the question. He is still not willing that any should perish. And this is the good news. The weary, the broken, the despairing, all of them can be whole with the gospel of hope. All of them can be healed and restored through a gospel of hope. Three times Paul uses this word. And we're about to read the third time. And it is really neat to see how he phrases this. This is verse 24. Now rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. You know, you could probably take any phrase in here and preach a sermon because this is just loaded stuff. How he feels like whatever happens to him. See, see, he's not. What did, did he say rejoice? Did he say rejoice? Rejoice in what? Do those two words go together? <laughs> we don't. We don't join them together. When I'm suffering, I'm praying for deliverance and healing. But he's talking about what he's put through because of his relationship with the Lord. He said, I rejoice in everything that I can suffer because I'm filling up in my flesh. I'm filling in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. I feel like I'm identifying what he suffered because if I suffer, it's okay because my suffering is connected to his suffering. And it says, for the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. And here he introduces a word that's very interesting, the mystery, musterion. It means something hidden, something not known. But watch what he's about to do with this word along with the word hope. The mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations is now disclosed to who? The Lord's people. It is no longer a mystery. It is no, it's a mystery, but now it's been disclosed to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. And what is the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you is the guarantee that he's going to glorify us at the end of this race. Christ in you the hope of glory. Glory has been reserved on your behalf. The down payment has been paid. Everything has been settled. And the only thing that we just have as a variable is time. And at some point, all of this is going to be fulfilled. You know, sometimes when I read something like this, I just want to... Somebody told me, in Sunday school, that a couple of people have had a, an inclination to just start running during the worship time. And, and that's fine with me. Just don't pull a hamstring or something. But that, that, uh, that 
that would make me remember some of the services I was in as a kid. You just get out of their way. There they go. They'll run you over if you get in the way. Sister Rudolph in Childersburg, when she went going, we all, we all was ducking and weaving and moving like, oh, there she, here she comes. Get out of her way. So you're not going to mess me up at all. But there's this guy that uh, calls soccer games. His name is Andres Cantor, if I say that right. Any you like international soccer? I love to watch it. He's the guy that when they score, goal! I'm not kidding you. And there's sometimes I just want to have a word that I can say something like this over and oh, this is so good. How can we just read it? Okay, well, that happens to us. All right. No, it can't be all right. It's got to be good. It's got to be off the chart good. He didn't come to bring us something that will be casually appreciated. He came to put something in us that we cannot contain in ourselves. There it is. I knew I could get somebody to do something back there. Think about this, and I'll close with this if the uh, musicians can come up. There's a great chapter in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that is a chapter of love, right? Great chapter on love. What's the conclusion of that chapter? Now about if these three, faith, Hope and love. Look at that word in the middle. I think we spend a lot of time on faith. We spend a lot of time on love. But undoubtedly, hope is pretty important. When he says, along with faith and love, there's one other thing that abides, that withstands the test of time and trials, whatever the Lord, I believe the Lord wants you to be so filled with hope that the sense of hopelessness will not overwhelm you. When you're facing something that's unexplainable, when it's overwhelming, and you feel like there's no way out. There's this confident, expectant hope that will carry you through those valleys. Would you stand with me this morning? That joyful, confident expectation. It's a sad thing for us to wrestle with despair and wondering if things are going to work out. But I believe specifically this morning, God wants to minister to those who have been battling hopelessness, despair. How is this going to work, Lord? I don't see a way out. I need you. And if that's you, could you just step out where you're at and just come and stand here? Because he wants to put hope into you that settles your nerves, settles your worries, settles your fears. If you're here and you've battled that kind of stuff this week, 
faith, hope, and love. He says, these three things remain. There's not a shortage of them. We just sometimes have a shortage of them. So, Lord, I pray this morning that no one walks out of here wringing their hands, wondering, but, Lord, what I'm facing this week is overwhelming. May they turn to you. That you're the author of faith. You're the author of love, but you're also the author of hope. And we need all three of them. We need to experience all three of them. Because they will outlast everything else, Lord. We're just going to worship a few moments. If you need prayer, surrender that. Surrender that hopelessness, that despair to the Lord this morning.